0: I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives.
1: We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange.
0: If you are leaving the train. In the late 1980s, British anthropologist Sharon MacDonald described her own feelings when embarking upon research at Science Museum in London. She said, I loved the immensity of the Science Museum and its almost surreal internal diversity, and the possibility of going behind the scenes of this world felt like and was a great adventure. Now, Over three decades later, I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. In 1884, William Morris, a great scholar of work and culture, said,
2: It is right and necessary that all men should have work to do, which should be worth doing and be of itself pleasant to do and which should be done under such conditions as would make it neither over-wearisome nor over-anxious.
0: In this series, I'm going to investigate how digital technology is fundamentally altering the way we work with our cultural heritage, specifically our science, technology, engineering and mathematics, otherwise known as STEM, heritage. By spending time in the five distinct science and technology museums which make up the Science Museum group, I seek to better understand how digital innovation is altering and influencing museum work. The museums within the group are the Science Museum in London, National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, Science and Industry Museum in Manchester, National Railway Museum in York and Locomotion in Shildon in County Durham. Alongside these sits the no less significant National Collection Centre at the former RAF base in Roughton in Wiltshire, which will house 80% of the Science Museum Group's collections by 2023. This new facility has been designed to increase public engagement with and access to the stored collections of the Science Museum Group. We'll also be reflecting on how the group's online presence acts as its seventh site, enabling its collection of over 350,000 objects, not to mention archives, to be accessed and experienced by visitors across the globe. Digital touches everything across Science Museum Group, and the conversations I've had have been surprising, rich and varied, from the process of collecting a meme of a sheep,
3: The meme we decided to try and collect was the absolute unit meme that the Museum of English Rural Life tweeted. We chose that one for two reasons. One, it was a physical photograph that got digitised, then was put on social media, turned into a meme, or it was associated with an existing meme concept, which is the absolute unit, and it just proliferated
0: to how staff used Twitter to stage a virtual exhibition about kaleidoscopes and Yorkshire Hollywood during lockdown.
4: I mean, I'm not, I'm not on Twitter, so I'm not used to writing in that, in that way.
0: Mm. Um, and so it yeah. was
4: a bit of a kind of a learning curve, to be honest. Um, but actually, it's really interesting because it's, it's a very different way of writing for text in a gallery. It's even a different way of writing from a blog. It, you know, it's, it's, it's very much its own thing. But it still enables you, when you do a Twitter exhibition, to go into some depth, Mm. which sounds crazy when you say that in Twitter, you can go in depth, because the whole point is it's kind of brevity. But when you've got um, a thread of, say, a dozen images with some information, which all kind of lead into each other in some way, or relate to each other in some way, it does give you that level of a level of engagement that you wouldn't think you could get doing it that way. Um, and sometimes they can be serious, sometimes they can be silly, they can be a mixture. So it, it, it can be quite freeing, mm. I think, because it's more of a, more of a relaxed, playful platform. Um, and that's not to say when we're writing on our own blog, you can't get, you know, you can't show personality. You can it is very different Mm. um, and a a different audience
0: i'm assuming as well to the growing need for digital preservation as they collect the contents of stephen hawking's cambridge office
4: i think from conservation perspective
5: we deal with like the materials rather than the sort of the data aspect Mm. of it because i don't really know i don't have enough background in computing to know how you would preserve data within an object i can keep the object in good condition, but I don't know about the information held upon it.
0: As Jack Kirby, Associate Director of Collection Services, states...
5: If you think about collecting, we need
2: curators to be aware of the implications of digital collecting, Mm. um, because just as a physical object takes up space, a digital collection takes up digital storage space, which has resource implications with it as well, both... Um, you know in terms of uh, electricity to keep the server going, but, but also um, skills in ensuring that that content is available in the future. Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't collect digital stuff like be Seems really easy, doesn't it? You've got a few JPEGs and whatever. You've got some social media stuff. Mm. Um, well, that doesn't take up very much space. Look at it; it fits on uh, you know on this USB stick or whatever. But actually, long term, the implications for that are profound. Mm.
0: You may be familiar with previous museum podcasts I've made about the role and impact of technology on museum and heritage work. People Change Museums, for example, explored the complex relationship between museums and technology in 2020, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. At the point of making that podcast, digital labour, especially across the cultural and heritage sectors, had become, momentarily, reactive. It involved rolling with the punches much of the time. Since then, we've seen museums and cultural venues return to being much more reflective about the relevance and value of new technologies and digital platforms in the way they are now required to work. But why should I care about digital work in a museum? Good question. Here's why. I think that the different kinds of digital labour to be explored in this series make up a constellation of forms of work which produce, like a constellation of stars, a pattern that shows us an alternative world of work, a world no less complex, overlapping or hierarchical than other, more familiar kinds of work that take place in a museum. I believe that this alternative constellation of work, often intangible, location-specific, sometimes but not always undervalued and underarticulated, operates and agitates alongside other, symbolic work in the museum. While this series will map and make more visible different kinds of digital labour, it will also survey how digital labour is influencing, reinforcing or adapting the power, knowledge and expertise of the museum. We are going to see how new practices of digital work reveal and develop new kinds of relationships – between science and education, between humans and machines, between individuals, museum departments, visitors and communities, and thus disrupt, mirror, model or inform new constellations of labour more generally across society. As sociologist Tony Bennett, author of The Birth of the Museum, stated in 1995,
2: The public museum should be understood not just as a place of instruction, but as a reformatory of manners in which a wide range of regulated social routines and performances take place.
0: For Bennett, and for us in this podcast, the museum can be thought of as at the centre of modern relations between culture and government. And what makes Science Museum Group such a fascinating object for this study is the fact that technology and innovation is fundamental to its collection. Here's Dr Jeff Belknap, head curator at Bradford's National Science and Media Museum, summing up the importance of digital technology for the group.
1: I think digital affects everything that we do in the museum, um, particularly because um, it's not just the tool for uh, reaching broader audiences, which it is, it is a really fundamental tool for getting more content online and reaching broader um, global audiences with that content. But it is also um, digital is inherently embedded in our collections. We uh, our collections are the other than computing are the things that made digital possible in the first place. So if we don't tell. The stories of the history of the evolution of digital uh, production, digital use, the internet, the the um, digital photography, you know, digital media in general, then we're not telling the full history of our collections, mm-hmm. which is ultimately the core work of a of, of a curator or an archivist, mm-hmm. is to try to connect those deep historical stories. Um, in our collections to our current audiences, so really, that me- for me that means, and for the rest of the team, that means digital is part of everything that we do. It's part of, part of the stories we tell. It's about the way that we catalog our objects. It is the way that we we reach broader audiences and more inclusive audiences. It's also a um, it can be a whole range of tools to engage with people in different ways. Um, Whether that's, you know, citizen science, uh, you know, methodologies, or whether that is um, sharing of images through uh, uh, Creative Commons licenses, or whether that's um, other big projects like the group is already engaged with, um, like the Towards the National Collections project, which are about linking collections together. You know, those allow us really to, digital means allows us to create new ways of enabling connections with people, ultimately, which is one of our driving remains, You know, that's what we're here to do. We're here to not just curate and collect the heritage that's important to us, but to make those relevant, to, mm. to fundamentally connect those with people.
0: Like a book made up of chapters, The Hidden Constellation is made up of five component episodes, each focusing on a different area of digital work in the museum. Each one will surface different, frequently unseen forms of digital labour. Together, they offer a cartography of digital behaviours, practices and activities. Such a map will help us see an alternative hierarchy of expertise at work in the museum, one which reframes but does not necessarily always challenge traditional hierarchies of cultural production in this space. Here's an overview of what you can expect during the series. In the next episode, we'll be considering new forms of digital work at the Science Museum Group. We'll be hearing about how new, advanced and more sophisticated artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques are enhancing the way the museum is able to make connections across a collection, joining together in unprecedented ways the people, places and histories of objects and archival materials here's dr. Tim Boone talking about the possibilities of digital innovation for him as a historian of science and technology
6: the data that represent our collections online are not strong mm. and they are very inconsistent um, we don't we've never successfully applied standard taxonomies for example um, what we have is hundreds of thousands of individual records of things which are sometimes comparable and sometimes not. You know, it's almost as though, you know, one inventory number will be steel pin and another one will be box of steel pins. Another one will be uh, milliner's shop, Mm. pins included. (laughs) You know, and they all have the same status uh, within, within the data we have. And I think the grants for creativity are somewhat in not only doing that very clever data science that has happened in Heritage Connector, but also saying, also looking at things like the off-the-shelf tools which are available for doing things like geo- geolocation and spatial mapping mm-hmm. of, of collections of, of data, because that too would allow you to bring together things from different collections which spoke to the same topic pins on a map which represented films from the BFI television programmes from the BBC uh, archives held in a distant town um, machine tools held in the Science Museum in London the mill building itself in Bradford you know, to be able to bring together those different things in a visual way mm. might turn out to be very potent in terms yeah. of Um, what we're trying to do with the project Mm -hmm. and when I say what we're trying to do with the project it's, in my mind, a lot of of our work is to do with helping the people who work digitally and the people who work historically to be able to speak some of the same language Mm.
0: This issue of digital being a singular language which one either understands or does not comes up a lot in studies of technology in museums and heritage sites. What was powerful for me when I spoke with Tim was the suggestion that being able to access this language and being able to broker and to find a bridge between those who were comfortable with using new emerging technologies and those more accustomed to more analogue ways of doing things could result in a considerable expansion of how we understand, access and connect with our past.
6: And it seems to me there are types of history which we're only just being able, beginning to be able to do, which are types of history which don't just use the written record but really draw on the material records as well. But more than that, mm-hmm. brings together different types of evidence and collections items from the past. And um, in my own work. I've always written about the history of science and films and television and museum displays. I've always brought together those different sorts of things. Um, because I suppose I'm excited by... What's the new question you can ask? What are the... You know, if you like, what's the category-busting mm-hmm. question that you can ask? Because that's where the, the you know, you'll make the most exciting discoveries. A suspicious person, a superstitious person, might think, well, you're going to destroy the historian's craft if you automate it. But it seems to me that's not the case at all. What What it will do, is, if it works, is to bring more sources into purview than you could ever have imagined. And in good empirical work, new data change the questions you can ask.
0: In episode three, we'll focus on some of the hidden digital labour that takes place in a science museum. Museums, by their very nature, are data-centric institutions and managing all this data requires a lot of labour, generally unseen, unsung labour. According to Dr Una Murphy and Dr Elena Villaspeza, museums have long been the collectors and creators of a diverse range of data. These datasets and the ethical and legal frameworks that govern them are complex. A complexity partly drawn out of the differing motivations and rationales for the collection and creation of these datasets, and the different historical legacies involved in their creation. In this episode, we'll hear from staff such as Dr Laura Humphreys, Curatorial and Collections Engagement Project Manager, discussing the sheer quantity of information her team have had to wrestle with during the One Collection Initiative, where some 350,000 objects are being moved from Blythe House in London to a new store at the National Collections Centre in Wiltshire. Science Museum Group, along with the British Museum and the V&A, have stored more than two million items at Blythe House, a Grade 2 listed building in central London and former headquarters of the Post Office Savings Bank since 1979. In 2015, the government announced a major £150 million grant to move the objects into modern and more appropriate facilities by 2023, after which the building will be sold for redevelopment. Here's a clip of my conversation with Laura during a long walk around of the weird and wonderful space that is the new National Collection Centre. So what will come in here? So
7: all of Blythe House basically is going here. So we're on the, on the mezzanine and below the mezzanine. And we've started to have some collections that have been unpacked here as well. So we'll see those in a second. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's going to take 18 months plus to unpack it all here. Mm-hmm. There's also collections from Manchester and Bradford will be coming to this part of the store in particular, so the small to medium part. And we've got some at the back, we've got some climate controlled rooms, which are for the more delicate bits of the collection, although this whole building is sort of lightly conditioned for things that need to be refrigerated or need a HEPA filter in the room. Right. they've got smaller rooms at the back what well, at the back at the side i've not quite got the
0: yet. i can't just quite get over the size of it i mean it's almost like an amazon warehouse style yeah size proportion i
7: think yeah i think that's sort all of it so this is the freestanding object grid so this is where we will have all our large objects but at the moment it's used for um unpacking so that there with the strapping on
4: yeah. is a
7: load that's been unloaded from a lorry and not yet unpacked. OK. The stuff down there is unpacked but waiting to be processed
0: and put in its right places. As well as being physically moved, the collection is also being re-centred as a resource not to be stored, but used, researched, visited and enjoyed. We're going to hear Laura in a moment using some technical terminology to describe how she corrals all of the information into one sustainable place, which I'm grateful for because it demonstrates how complicated managing the multiple databases required to look after a collection the size held by Science Museum Group is. Also, once you've heard the names Mimsy, Adlib and Panda a few times, it does get clearer, trust me. Saying that, it might be helpful to give you a few definitions. Both Mimsy and Adlib are collections management software systems, with Mimsy being the preferred software for museums, while Adlib is for libraries and archives, a similar but distinct package for managing and sharing information. Laura also talks about Asset Panda in What Follows, which is a more general-purpose software for helping people track, manage and support their assets throughout their life cycle. Asset Panda's official slogan is track everything from laptops to lawnmowers and that pretty much sums it up. It allows you to monitor the whereabouts of vast numbers of objects using clever cloud technology and a barcoding system which has proved revolutionary for the Science Museum group during the One Collection move.
7: So we did some initial time trials with our uh, existing collections database and it would have taken us 13 or 14 years to get out of Blythe House and process everything. So we knew we had to find another solution, and that solution was a piece of software called Asset Panda, which is not Mm. great for museum-based detail, but it's really great for speed, and it's very often used on um, warehousing and inventory kind of tasks. So it gave us the speed to get through 300,000 objects at Blythe House, which we couldn't have had in our existing database. So that was good, but it meant we then had to make sure the data was... Integrated properly at the end, which was took a, an, a further six months after we should have finished with it. So it wasn't without its problems. It wasn't perfect, but it meant that we could hopefully get out of Blythe House on time, whilst inventorying, hazard checking, photographing everything. Um, and then we, our collections database, our main one is Mimsy, but our library and archives is all uh, in Adlib. Um, we also use Koha for the library catalog. We've got iBase um for the photographs which translates into media library. So we do have databases coming out of our ears and that doesn't count all the spreadsheets that people have with information, <laughs> spreadsheets that we used to get around problems with asset panda. So because we couldn't capture a lot of data in asset panda that we needed to I set up a huge like six tab spreadsheet with macros that ended up being called Honey Badger.
0: Um, hang on did you name it, honey badger. Sort
7: of it was a collective effort because we decided that Asset Panda was causing a lot of problems and it a panda is actually a really inefficient animal. <laughs> and we're like, Okay, so what's the most efficient animal we can think of then? And it was the the sort of brutality of the honey badger. <laughs> um so that's how it became honey badger, which is a way of curatorial documentation registration, like keeping track of all the problems they're working on that can't be resolved quickly. Okay. There's lots of spreadsheets and I have semi-regular amnesties with collection services and curatorials saying, what information have you got that's not in the database that we should capture? And when I say the database, then I mean Mimsy, mm-hmm. How do we get it all captured so that when people leave and their one drives get taken away, that we don't lose all that information? But then we've also still got card catalogues. Um, we've got wow. cards called the Welcome Flimsies. Um, which I think is a Mimsy joke. (laughs) But there's lots of handwritten and typed out information that we also hold. Um, There's a whole notebook of N numbers relating to the Welcome collection that's just a handwritten, ruled notebook. And we're currently... My team are currently transcribing that because it would be really useful if that was searchable. Mm -hmm. And we're worried because there's only one copy. So... There's information coming out of our ears, not all of it's digital, and we're trying really hard to corral it into one sustainable place.
0: And why exactly is this so important?
7: We wouldn't know where any of the collection is, or which sounds ridiculous. Of course, it's in stores, but when you've got 300,000 objects, you need to be able to look it up where that particular microscope you want is. Yeah. Because there's 3,000 of them in one room and they all look very similar. Um, yeah, there's there's so much of that. A lot of that is... My job is made up of corralling that information together, Mm. trying to make it more accessible, make it better. We've always got an eye on the past and an eye on the future as well. So we're still using MIMSI and we're not really talking about moving on to a new database, but we probably will in the next five years. So actually that is coming into our planning about um, if we do this big project to make parts and holes in the database easier to understand and to be able to show a hierarchy on collections online will that make our job harder when we have to change over to a new database as we will in the relatively short term future Um, yeah I think think hidden digital labour is a good way of putting it because people think when you digitise something they think you're just going to scan it or take a picture of it it's just not that simple and it's like the museum I mentioned earlier that digitised everything and put it on floppy disks (laughs) it's just not that simple and it might be a terrible waste of time in 10 years to have done it all that way so it's all a bit terrifying
0: I think these comments encapsulate the sheer level of database mechanics and concurrent head-scratching involved in working with a collection of the size, scale and import held by the Science Museum Group and once again emphasise why this museum service is such a worthy one of study when it comes to the role of digital technology and innovation in its future. In this series, we'll be delving deep into both the intriguing and the under aspects of digital labour involved in some of the processes that Laura mentions briefly here. In episode four, we're going to be thinking about the distributed nature of digital work and the diverse ways that different science and technology museums across the group choose to use digital in their work and infrastructure. For example... In Manchester, we'll be hearing from staff such as Chris Keady, Head of Learning at the Science and Industry Museum, discussing the role of digital in their education and outreach work. When we spoke, Chris acknowledged the location-specific difficulties faced by the museum during the pandemic due to the lack of digital access experienced by some of its local audiences.
2: For us, I suppose, um, the key thing around all of this is is in not making assumptions that just because something is digital just because something is accessible online you know we did big reaching programs through our partnership with bbc bite size and massive um you know uh, reach through 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 programs like that during the lockdown but there is still um digital poverty there's still um the fact that you know as i said you can't just have assume that because something is online everybody's going to have access to it so i think sort of making sure that there are um other provisions and other um, ways of accessing and spaces that you can bring that content to through different platforms as well as just purely digital is is kind of the ongoing challenge for us Mm -hmm. at the minute
0: Digital inequality is not spread equally across the UK, but rather in more economically deprived areas such as the northeast and northwest of England, where there are higher numbers of digitally excluded groups. We'll be spending time with staff and volunteers from museums belonging to the group in less well-off parts of the country, especially in Bradford and County Durham, talking about how they are reflecting on the growing digital divide in the work that they do. While museums made immense and impressive efforts to move more of their content online and create new forms of engagement with their collections using the internet during the pandemic, this may have had the effect of further excluding those who, for a variety of reasons, already felt disengaged. The Science and Industry Museum's response to this is thoughtful.
2: So we're thinking about industry in our museum, obviously. So we're thinking about industries, we're thinking about revolutions, we're thinking Mm -hmm. about how people have had ideas that have changed the world. So thinking about what the role of digital is from that context is probably really, really exciting. So Mm -hmm. when we have um, uh, young people come through, when we work with schools, when we work with communities... Um, it's not that we want everybody to leave as a STEM professional. We don't want everyone to sign up that day to become the next, you know, engineer or whatever. We just want people to feel like they can, mm-hmm. and that it is mm-hmm. something for them. If it's something that they want to explore or pursue, that it is for them and it's open to them and it's it is um, somewhere that, where they can see themselves. So I have um, a, a, a you know a wonderful vision of this place in the future from a learning perspective, where you are immersed in. Um, Centuries of innovation, of stories of of, of people that have achieved things in the past. Mm-hmm. People that have created things, people that have um, had ideas and, and pursued them, and it and it inspires you to think about what your part of that in the future might be or could be. And I think technology allows you to um, to enhance that story. It allows you practically to really um, increase the rate of which that you're able to ha- have representation to see yourself as part of literally on the walls I think it's really powerful thinking about if you're walking around a space or a gallery um, or you're engaging with a programme piece of programming seeing yourself represented is a huge part of, of that uh, in terms of from a science capital approach um, and I think technology and digital representation is, is, is included in that and a great way to do it
0: mm. We'll be considering distributed digital labour from other angles too, building on some of the themes covered in episode three on hidden digital labour. I'm interested in how often digital work in museums can be invisible and hence easily undervalued, and how it can be asymmetrically practised across the museum. Occasionally, certain kinds of digital labour, such as cataloguing and documentation management, can be gendered, with mainly women taking on these roles in the museum. Elsewhere, while some people have embraced the role of technology in their work, others struggle, for several interlinked reasons, to prioritise this within their practice. We'll be reflecting on what all this means for the equilibrium of museums, and how this might be addressed in future planning. The penultimate episode, episode 5, will consider how legacy digital labour contributes to current museum practices with technology. I hope to situate the so-called pivot to digital in museums within a longer, complex history of technology. As Jeff helped me see when I spoke to him in Bradford.
1: In the 19th century, the the kind of questions we're asking about the digital age were similar questions they were were, um, agonising over photography. Just look how big this thing is, look how many things we're creating, is this art, is this real? All of those same questions we're asking now were exactly the same questions they were asking at that point. Um, So we're we're trying to to essentially say that these two things are fundamentally different when there is just a evolution of uh, of technology and that um, uh, all of our choices around the digital age should be thinking about um, reflecting on some of those histories and the choices that were made at that point to help us figure out what to do with digital choices at this point.
0: Here's Mark Cutmore, head of commercial experiences, talking about how the history of science and technology is pivotal to the rationale of the group.
3: For us, it's very much in the DNA of what we are. Um, And uh, you know, there's lots of science museums, lots of science centres. We're even a bit different from them. You know, the the Science Museum and the the group of museums are very lucky to have some incredible pieces of of, and artifacts of of human engineering and technology. and we're always telling the story of that development um, and we do that in lots of different ways.
0: We'll be hearing from museum professionals who have worked with the group for close to four decades, discussing the longer history of digital within its working practices and approach to the public's engagement with science. One of these figures is Dave Patton, head of New Media.
3: I guess as I was starting, it was as the museum was just starting to put digital exhibits on the floor of the museum. Um, so when I joined, we were just finishing off a, a gallery about plastics, and there were a couple of screen-based exhibits there. Uh, the first iteration of Launchpad, which is basically what they got me to do, is build four exhibits for the first iteration of Launchpad, which is the forerunner of Wonder Lab.
5: Uh, and then
3: things for the Space Gallery, when that, was, that reopened in... Say nineteen eighty-five. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. But the mu- yeah, the museum was really supportive, and the museum. I mean, before I came, really kind of made the decision that I guess happened in quite a lot of big museums in, in the eighties about whether to engage with digital tech as a yeah. kind of interpretive media. Um, and, and some did, but like this museum you know, absolutely sees that as a great opportunity to do some things we wanted to do, and, and some didn't. And I think digital technology is just one of the tools that we use to tell the stories and to bring our stories to life. And it's really good at doing some things, um, but, but yeah, it can be quite expensive, uh, and, and it's, got a, you know, it's got a shelf life. Um, you know, in, in a way that you know, graphics panels last forever really you know dioramas do digital technology has got a life of you know depending on what it is somewhere between maybe five and if you're really lucky about 15 years if you kind of really persevere with it Um, but it can mean big big reinvestments on yeah on a fairly regular cycle which is yeah not something that museums are really set up
6: to cope with
0: another is tim who we've already heard from in this episode
6: so when I started at the end of November nineteen eighty two, um, the Science Museum was still formally part of the civil service. It was a department of the it was a subdepartment of the Department of Education and Science, as were quite a few of the national museums. We became an arm's length body, trustee, a trustee body as a result of the 1983 Heritage Act. And I think that came into force in 1986. Mm, I'm not quite uh, clear on when it came into force. Um, And the National Heritage Act was... um, Well, one interpretation is it was a way of losing numbers of civil servants from official figures um, under the Thatcherite Revolution in government. Right. Um, but we continued to be paid for by the state and very little changed immediately Mm. Um, but uh, all this is to say I joined a civil service organisation I signed the official Secrets act that was part of becoming a member of staff Um, and continuity and change you know, if I think back to that time, it feels like a completely different world. It feels like something out of an Evelyn more novel. Um, <laughs> in terms of technology, um, the, de- the office I joined, um, the senior museum assistant, had a typewriter. Um, and I quickly learnt that, I think it was the director's secretary... Had a computer, a word processor, um, and that was a machine which ran a program called WordStar, which was one of the very first mm. word processors. And that was the only, that was the only um, personal computer in the building, as far as I know. And this is recollection; it's not history. Mm. Um, but you know, it was exotic enough that you might go and have a look at it. <laughs> Now, when I say I was here when the Science Museum's first infantry computer was switched on, um, I believe the Prime Mm -hmm. computer, which was a mini-computer, which was housed in the library, Mm -hmm. which was then across the road in Imperial College, I believe that was switched on in April 1984. Wow. Okay. Um, And it was purchased... um, to computerise the uh, catalogue of the Science Museum Library uh, and also to uh, enable a computer inventory of the museum's object collections to be stored on a computer. Before that, it was all a matter of ledgers and files and um, 6x4 cards.
0: Here's Dave again.
3: I mean, that, that, pro- that probably predates me slightly because there were some there were certainly computers in things like Challenge of the Chip exhibition. That was before I came to the museum. And when I came, there were certainly a number of... Um, there were a number of computers that were really being used as process controllers. There were things like Sinclair Mark 14s um, and Acorn System 3s that yep. were used to basically replace what had been done with electromechanical can systems so they were, they were like triggering lights um, and triggering carousel slide projectors.
0: Going back to Dave here is insightful because yet again it shows that digital technology didn't have a singular or straightforward journey into the museum and that while it was being introduced as Tim says to help with cataloguing it was also beginning to be used in museum displays we'll be hearing from staff reflecting on the early adoption of digital technology within the group to build a stronger picture of what has changed and what remains the same in terms of how museum work is ordered and constructed around innovation. In the final episode, we'll be thinking about collective digital labour and how digital work often isn't just one person sitting in front of a screen, but rather a collaborative effort involving multiple individuals, machines and processes working in tandem. This was made clear to me early on in my research when I spoke with Hope Myoba, comedian in residence for the group. Throughout the making of The Hidden Constellation, I've been struck by the importance of the work undertaken by the over 800 volunteers who support the different museums across the group. We'll be looking at some of the often unsung digital labour undertaken by volunteers and how, potentially, digital equity in museums starts with them. Here's Hope talking about the successful digital volunteering project she's undertaken.
5: Still feel part of SMG and the museums that they were um, volunteering at. Like, as you said, with the pandemic, a lot of the volunteers couldn't come into the museum, so therefore they were kind of out of the loop in a way. Um, Because a lot of volunteering work is you have to be physically in the museum. Sometimes you're helping with cataloguing or you're coming in for like meetings and discussions. So, when that's kind of taken away. They, kind of, they don't really have much interaction with the museums except a newsletter, maybe here and there. And with the digital side of the project, we wanted to kind of make them still feel part of SMG, still contribute their time and their hours to the collection that they're very enthusiastic about, and also um, get them thinking about new avenues of what museum work and what a museum job is think when people think about museum jobs or museum work they kind of think of like a curator working in the archives section or being a visitor's system or being a keeper they don't always kind of necessarily think about the digital aspect of it and it also means it opens up the world of Wikipedia to them. Wikipedia is like the sixth most used website in the entire world and English Wikipedia, I believe, is the number one Wikipedia used everywhere. So, not only are they contributing to SMG and museums, but they're also contributing to a repository of knowledge and encyclopedic knowledge that potentially millions of people can access, which is very exciting. And when you think about a museum and how many people it can kind of reach, Sometimes it's only a select few who can make it in for exhibitions or who can make it in for work, but here they get to reach thousands and thousands of people just by simply contributing, like editing an article or um, embedding a link somewhere. So it's a very exciting and I don't know, I think a very new project for us obviously they all have different levels of like digital literacy as Mm -hmm. you mentioned Mm -hmm. so you have kind of the younger generation who know how to use wikipedia and vary on it and kind of get on and then we have some of the older volunteers who might take time and might need to learn and i think what we did well with the volunteering project is we broke it down in its most basic forms so um For the first three weeks of the project, the volunteers learn how to kind of use the collections online, how to use Wikipedia. So that's everything from like um, basics of editing to how to write and structure your article to thinking about citations and references. And then once they feel comfortable enough with all of that knowledge that they've learned, we then move on to specified um, topic sessions. And this is when They kind of start writing articles or editing or embedding links or uploading images around things like chemistry, everyday technology, women in STEM, um, climate change and any other kind of sessions that we have. And we've kind of gotten to the point now where the older volunteers don't need me anymore. (laughs) They've kind of gone off. And they've learned all these new parts of Wikipedia that I do and teach them about and interact with each other and teach each other how to to use it.
0: The cultural anthropologist Georgina Bourne in her ethnographic study of the BBC described it as
7: An institution riven by contradictions at once liberal and elitist arrogant and fragile a cornerstone of British democracy yet replete with internal hierarchies mirroring Britain's broader social
0: inequalities. The science and technology museums discussed in this series undoubtedly carry their own contradictions. This podcast is merely a constellation of perspectives. It does not claim to capture the museum in its entirety. There are inevitably things I've missed. Indeed, I think you'd need to loiter around these museums at least 100 years to understand them fully, and maybe you couldn't even then. It would be remiss of me not to mention that I've been researching and writing this at a time of intense public scrutiny for the group. There are many voices covering that story, and while this podcast remains attentive to what they have to say, it seeks to create its own narrative. I hope to show that by better grasping the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective kinds of digital labour that take place here, we can build a more up-to-date picture of why a museum, as an institution of public knowledge and expertise, functions the way it does. Thank you for listening. See you here next time on The Hidden Constellation. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr. Sophie Frost. Voice actors are Chris Thorpe Tracy, Reefa Thorpe Tracy, Ben Murray, and Stephen Orchard. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.